You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies Staff Picks Edition. Yo, Jimbo. Yo, Jimbo. Yo, Jimbo. 1961 classic of Japanese cinema. Hmm. Often voted one of the greatest movies of all time, international or otherwise, by film groups. Very influential. I'll start things out. Before I even introduce the guys, I'll, I'll tell a little George Lucas story. George Lucas is editing Star Wars, and it's boring and stupid and stayed, and it always starts with a master shot and then cuts into coverage of the people, and it's just not working at all, and the editor will not change it. And George Lucas fires the editor. This is obviously for A New Hope. And because he has a vision for how this thing is going to be cut together dynamically, we're going to cut on action. We're going to get into a scene quickly. We're going to get out. It's all going to be fluid. It's going to be dynamic. Well, that editing style is all over the films of Akira Kurosawa. And that generation of filmmaker, your Lucases, your Spielbergs, your people like that, would have drank deep from the well of Akira Kurosawa. And so, this is the movie that gave us, obviously, A Fistful of Dollars, Clint Eastwood's Career, Dirty Harry, Mad Max, Star Wars, everything cool comes from Yojimbo. It all starts here. And that's not an exaggeration. That's just the truth. And I'll tell you what else is the truth. Ben Solzer is here. Hello. I cannot, <laughs> cannot lie about that. Other things maybe, but not this. No, no, no. There's, there's going to be... There's a line. There's going to be exactly one lie in this podcast, folks. And it's your job to figure out which one it is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not that Ben Solzer is here because he's right here. He's sitting right there. Ben, this was your staff pick. Oh, and you're the preacher who's a teacher of cinema, by the way. True. And this was your staff pick. True. And you'll be explaining yourself shortly. But there's another thing that you I need to I didn't get to explain myself. Hey, did. Not really. You said you were a vindictive jerk that wanted to take revenge on us by making us watch a beloved classic that our audience would really like to watch and enjoy. Yeah. That was like an explanation. Yeah. That seemed like an explanation to me. Yeah. If you'd like to explain further, though. No, that's good. We're here. No. All right, well, then the only explanation we need is the explanation from Ben. I, I, I like to explain that I thought it was really cool when I saw it however long ago, a long time ago. A long and time ago. I just remember thinking far, far in away. a galaxy far, far away named Chattanooga, if I'm not mistaken. It's really cool and fun and uh, stylish and funny. That's all that I remembered. And I, know, I knew that I liked Toshiro Mifune, who's... The title character. Well, also one of the great stars of cinema. Uh, well, speaking of cool, fun, stylish, Stars funny, of cinema. Stars of cinema. There's there's someone that you still need to introduce for us, Ben. Clint Eastwood. Yes. <laughs> He's here in this. Oh, no, no. Cooler. Jake Mensel. Pastor. Hey. is a master of cinema. What's up? Apparently cooler than Clint Eastwood. Yep. Uh, not hard. Are really. we talking like <laughs> modern, like current crime, crime <laughs> macho? <laughs> of course. I can hardly get he's, words out of my mouth. No Clint question. Clint he's Eastwood. cooler than that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd say, Jake, you're cooler than any iteration of Clint Eastwood after 1992. Okay. Probably. <laughs> is that is that right after Unforgiven? Is yeah. That what you're, is in the that line the of fire. In the line of fire, I think is 94. So I'd give him up through 94. But- yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I'm, I'm revising it. <laughs> this one made it to 94. Highest uh, Grand, Grand Torino is kind of cool, right? Mm -hmm. Grand Torino was cool. I, I, f I felt like people liked that movie more than it 
deserved just because they love Clint Eastwood. It was more about our relationship with him as a star. Yeah. Well, as you know, my wife died and I live in a house by myself and I hate all the races that are moving into my neighborhood. Yeah, get off my lawn. I don't know. The movie felt a little contrived to me. Let's let me just say that. But we're not here to talk about Grand Grand Torino. We're here to talk about Yo Jimbo. This is if we haven't been uh, clear. I dare say it's hard to talk about Yo Jimbo without talking about Clint Eastwood. So yeah, well, that's true. That's true. I mean, this movie, if people don't know, Fistful of Dollars is a direct, not just like derivative or downstream, but like they literally ripped it off, pretty much beat for beat, joke for joke, moment for moment, shot for shot, shot for shot. I mean, not quite shot for shot, but. It's it's amazing to think that a director of Sergio Leone's caliber and reputation got his start with such a blatant act of plagiarism, which I I mean, I love the Dollars movies and I love Fistful of Dollars and obviously Sergio Leone is a talented guy. But if you actually go back and watch Yojimbo, it's hilarious how blatant Fistful of Dollars is and it's... Homage, let's say. Uh, 62, if I'm not mistaken. 62 it's not or an homage if he got sued for it. And yeah, he did. Pay big. He did. They settled out of court. <laughs> I don't think we know the exact numbers, but we do know that Akira Kurosawa made, I think, more money from Fistful of Dollars than he did from any of his movies, (laughs) managed to finance many of his later movies (laughs) just through whatever cut of Fistful of Dollars he got. (laughs) Anyway, Yojimbo, I don't know, Ben, is there anything else you'd like to say by way of explanation or? I've I've said more than once on this podcast that I like Japanese stuff a lot. Japanese cinema. There's some, I've seen a bunch of samurai movies. I've seen some anime. I dare say we probably skirted that topic a little bit, or not skirted. It skirts when you avoid a topic, I guess. Uh, skirts when you like talk about the fringe of a topic. Or yeah, something. I think we, that's why I was using it the way that I want that I wanted to. I, we probably skirted that co- topic in the classic and classically named episode of Ramble in the Bronx. Yeah, we did. We talked about that. That was more about Hong Kong cinema, but mm-hmm. I just can't imagine we didn't talk about Japanese. We, we got into other Eastern cinema too. Yeah. 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 Jake, what is your relationship with Eastern cinema and Japanese stuff, culture in general? And Fairly non-existent. I like Ninja Turtles. Uh, well, I don't know why you'd say non-existent then. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> it exists. <laughs> They're ninjas. It's right there in the title. <laughs> They're not just Teenage Mutant Turtles. Yeah. I, anime is a thing that really I've been introduced to by you guys. And... So that's true of anime, I think, mostly in general. Not even Pokemon or anything like that. I just, Dragon Ball Z. I Speed Racer, nothing? Didn't, nope, just didn't grow up with Not Speed Racer. I can't think of anything that I grew mm-hmm. up with or that I was attracted to in and of myself. It was more. So whether it's, now that Kurosawa's name is in my head, Miyazaki right. left. So Miyazaki Ben introduced me to Miyazaki, got me spirited away for a Christmas present. Thoroughly traumatized all your kids. Eh, Mm -hmm. More or less, but it was fun. So, and then you got me Cowboy Bebop, which I I didn't, I've had trouble making it through just because Amanda is not at all interested and I have to go to the front room to play the DVDs. Yeah, I just, I can't, yeah. I can't figure out why she wouldn't be interested. So, and that's weird. I have to like sit in the front room by myself right. to watch Cowboy <laughs> View Up. So I just haven't really progressed very far yeah. in it. Also not something you're going to be watching with the kiddos. Right. So. Yeah, that's the other thing. If I could watch it with the kids and she didn't, that, that'd be a different story. But it's like just me by myself. <laughs> In the front room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty sad. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, but it was, what I've seen, it was pretty cool. 
And, but uh, I'm pretty sure this is my first samurai movie, Kurosawa movie. Really? For sure. Yeah. Although you've watched, yeah. you of all of us, you have watched the most Star Wars content, which mm-hmm. means that's you, true. Watched- so I've seen all these things over and over again. And so I keep, and I've seen uh, all, uh, probably every Sergio Leone film right too so i don't know I, my mind was just full of clint eastwood and cad bane and mm-hmm. stuff like that so mm-hmm. all the little clone wars episodes that are just ripoffs of of uh, plots like this one right and you can't pretend like that's not the case when you watch a movie like this which means sometimes movies like this simply don't work because they've been so thoroughly cannibalized by the things that they've influenced that they just cannot pack any kind of punch. Uh, there's any number of classic films that I think are like When you're that. doing things like that the first time, it's hard to do it the best time. Right. Mm-hmm. People come by and find ways to improve and capture the magic of your idea and do it better, do it newer, do it fresher, do it with better action, with better soundtrack, with better graphics in color. I mean, yeah. So higher res cameras all the things like that's just we own right yep well we'll have to decide whether we think this movie is an academic curiosity it's more than a curiosity it's a very influential and important movie but we'll have to decide whether it's actually an entertaining movie and we'll get to that when we give our our rating at the end of the at the end of the episode but (sighs) do i have permission to board board the context text ship let's do it yeah okay ben you're going to have to help me out with this because I'm not an expert in Japanese culture or Jack- Japanese art, but Ben, <laughs> but <off>. you are. <laughs> it's a good thing you have a real expert here named Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipedia. Well, where to start? Let's let's work our way through. Let's talk about medieval Japanese culture <laughs> because that's where this movie is set, and that's who the samurai are. And then let's talk about modern sort of moving into the modern era and what that meant, because that'll bring us to the life of Kurosawa, who grew up and became of age and became an artist at a crucial time, Pearl Harbor, in Japanese history. And then we'll finish by talking a little bit about the life of Toshiro Mifune, the great Toshiro Mifune, just a really dynamic, fun actor to watch. I think that part of this movie. Holds up anytime you got a close up of that guy just scratching his chin or <laughs> did growling. a lot, a lot of scratching in this movie. A lot of scratching in this movie, but but that was the thing. That's the well. Anyway, well we'll, we'll get to it. We'll talk about the scratching. But the thing again, I'm no expert. But the thing that you have to understand, the thing that I understand about Japan is that it was pretty broken up into these different clans. Over there, there's so many different periods. If you try and look at Japanese history, it's just like there, there was this emperor, and then there were these people in charge, and then the Mongols invaded, and then this happened. So it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. But basically, for such a small amount of land, there were all these clans. And for, for the classic kind of period of feudal Japan from about the 12th century to the 1800s, you would have an emperor. But the emperor would very often be the puppet of the shogun, who is more like the military leader, the, the guy that was in charge of the military, the general, basically. And then under him, would be he would be real, the real de facto ruler of the country. The emperor would oftentimes just be a puppet. Obviously, there's these different regimes where power shifts from people to people. But 
under the shogun would be do you say it daimyo the you got me the 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 landholding class the the people that would you know like feudal lords that would that would own land and then they would have serfs and people under them they wouldn't call them serfs but that's the easiest way for a, us to understand they and were, then yeah so the, yeah feudal lords i'm just reading that the late edo period when this took place would have had 300 regional feudal lords right. ruling over japan under the shogunate daimyo yeah that's exactly he talks about being a daimyo ad nauseum yep in the book of boba fett <laughs> yeah <laughs> something that is very in the first four episodes before it turns into the the Mandalorian and gets good. Yeah, yeah. Before they're like, <laughs> no one cares what you are, Boba Fett. <laughs> Let's just leave Boba Fett behind for a minute <laughs> in the show that bears his name. So anyway, you have these feudal lords, these daimyo who rule little regions and kind of have their own fiefdoms, and they'll basically be in charge. Serving them are basically the knights, the samurai, the warrior class, and. They're considered nobility. I mean, I think they have a little bit more power, a little bit more property than the way we think of a traditional European knight. Although I don't know a lot about European knights. Maybe European knights could be property holders. But you have, you have this very respected military class of nobles called the samurai. And they're the ones that fought off the Mongol hordes and did all this cool stuff. As Japan got militarized in the 18th and 19th century, which we'll talk about in a second, the samurai kind of fell away because it just didn't make sense to keep these awesome warriors on tap when you could just conscript an army of nobodies to do your bidding, which that kind of tension, actually. And then you could hire Tom Cruise to train them. And then you could hire Tom Cruise <sighs> to train them. Get out of the way, Ken Watanabe. You're clearly not a good enough star to anchor this movie. <laughs> we need Cruise. <laughs> Oh boy, you want to talk about a great samurai? Movie? I thought you said this was the first samurai movie you'd <laughs> well, seen. Well, I remember, Jake. I remember the the last samurai. <laughs> right. Maybe I he wasn't going to talk yeah, about yeah. the last samurai movie he'd seen. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why you needed to even watch this after that. You know, that oh. was the summation of samurai movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was the last one. <laughs> it's right there in the title. Oh, oh boy, I don't want to talk about the last samurai. That's just depressing. Edward Ed Zwick, one of the Not only worst filmmakers. Was that a horrible movie, but it was like the worst possible like I remember so experience watching it. Right. Amanda and I were looking for a movie to watch a long time ago. Like I think we might have been dating or engaged. And we were looking for something light and fun. And my brother just kept insisting that The Last Samurai was the greatest thing ever and we had to watch it. And so we finally said, fine, we'll put it on, go away. <laughs> and we sat there for five hours or however long that movie is. Feels like five hours. And enjoy the romance and the action. Oh my and goodness. The, sweep, what, uh, the epic sweep. Hey, to be fair, there's a cool ninja attack in that movie. It's th three minutes out of five hours, but I like that ninja attack. Oh my attack. goodness. Mm -hmm. What a waste of life. That's nah, pretty terrible. It's pretty terrible. But at least Tom Cruise defeated the white menace or whatever. The, the evil civil war guy. And help Ken Watanabe commit seppuku. Oh, that's right, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to put it out of my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Ed, Ed Zwick, a filmmaker we will never talk about. He did Glory. He did Blood Diamond. He just does the oh lamest. Most Courage Under Fire with Meg Ryan. <laughs> it's always like, how can we filter this awesome story of cool native people through the most bland uh, Matthew Broderick or Tom Cruise <laughs> or... 
Jennifer Conley and what's his face, uh, DiCaprio and Blood Diamond. I mean, I'm no like well, it's amazing woke that he, person, but it's amazing that he there was a time in his life where he could get Cruz and DiCaprio. Yeah. Well, he puts together these big packages with weighty themes. You know, of course, everybody wanted to Oscar do glory, but, but it's the kind of stuff mm-hmm. that does not hold up very well because the woke crowd keeps moving left, which means that these things like you watch glory now and it's weirdly conservative in some ways and ultra cringe and ultra. Yeah. Just cringe. Like, like too paternalistic even for us. Um, anyway, that has nothing to do with even for us, even for us. <laughs> I like that caveat. <laughs> <laughs> well, we like things that are paternal, but we don't like that. Yeah. That nolistic. And we don't like it that much. And <laughs> Edward Zick, Zwick is the king of the adding nolistic. So anyway, <laughs> but also combining it with dumb, outdated lefty stuff. Anyway, Edward Zick sucks. I'm mostly embarrassed for Morgan Freeman and Denzel Washington, though, with that movie. Yeah. More than Matthew Broderick. and. Well, I'm embarrassed for Ken Watanabe. I mean, you get these great, powerful people, and then you, you make you them play second fiddle. He's like... Yeah. Make us white people feel good about ourselves. Type roles. Type roles. Yeah. yeah. It's it's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. So (laughs) anyway, speaking of horrible, it would be horrible if I didn't continue giving this history of Japan. (laughs) It would be. (laughs) So so, to keep throwing things in and see uh, how well we handle them. No, it's good. I'll be like, uh, what's his face? I'll be like Sanjuro. You'll throw your uh, gun bullets at me or whatever. (laughs) I'll throw my bullets at you. I'll dodge them. So so here's the really interesting and important thing about Japan. They totally embraced westernization in a way that China failed to do. And China just got kicked in the pants by the opium wars and by all this stuff that happened in the 18th century, where they're just like, we are not going to open our doors to the West. And 19th the West, century, right? Or 19th century. Sorry. I always, in the 1800s, I always mess that up. But, and the West is like, yes, you are China. We're the West. We can do what we want. And China's like, oh, man, now we're demoralized and we suck and everyone's taking advantage of us and we're splintering apart and the communists are going to prey on us. But Japan had actually a similar isolationist policies. It was very hard for missionaries to get in there. You know, you can read the stories. But in 1854, the West decided, you know what? We're going to open up Japan. We just are not okay with this. So they did a little bit of the old gunboat diplomacy, uh, quite literally. They sent, of all people, Commodore Matthew Perry to pull up with like a, a fleet of Navy and the most awesome new guns. How you doing? Yeah, exactly. They, they, and they got uh, Ensign Jennifer An- Aniston and they got Joey and <laughs> <laughs> the whole gang. The, yeah, they got the whole gang. And they said, we're going to make friends with you, Japan, or... We'll invade you and blow everything up. And so, and then that's not me reading back woke history or anything like that. That's exactly what they did. They pulled up with a bunch of guns and they said, you better open up to the West. How'd you like to sign a treaty with us? By the way, we've got a bunch of awesome guns trained on you right now. And Japan is like, well, okay. So in 1854, they sign what's called the Convention of Kanagawa and it's and kind of, is that when Tom Cruise came over? I think that's around the time Tom Cruise okay. came over. Actually, yeah. probably a few years later, because that's after the Civil War, which is what, mm-hmm. the 60s, right? In the 1860s. Okay, yeah. 1860s. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so Tom Cruise. So so actually, 
Last Samurai, for what it's worth, is taking place in this weird time period when the when the West and the East are meeting, which is part of the deep resonant themes of that movie. But the thing about <laughs> so deep, so, yeah, resonant. It's, it's so deep and so resonant, both. <laughs> but the 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 thing about Japan is once the West comes and says like, "Hey, you got to open your doors to them." It's kind of I was trying to think. I what, love you, Matt. By yeah, the way, I, I love you, Matthew Perry. Brother, come on. Oh well. Yeah, I mean, you also love Matthew Perry, though. He's Of course, yeah. He's, like, probably between him and my brother. I don't know. There's not much. <laughs> you know, I would say Matthew <laughs> no, Perry. it's just, like, you know, this oh, is the oh, right, okay. you know, right. they compete. Right. Matthew Perry, compete. in addition to being mean to the Japanese, might be my least favorite friend. And uh, caveat, I've only seen one or two episodes of Friends. But uh, really? I, I really? Caveat, I've seen escape, zero. How did you escape? How did you make it to this age in zero. life? Zero episodes of Friends. What in the world is wrong well, with you? People? I'm happy. Jake, we I were feel too, like I'm happy. Too busy before. watching Yojimbo. <laughs> Cowboy Bebop. Cowboy Bebop, yeah. Not a lot of, that Venn diagram no doesn't. No wonder you guys were such dorks. <laughs> so, uh, much like your brother, Jake. <laughs> yes. You, you remember how your brother wouldn't play basketball with you. And you were like. Yeah, because I destroyed him all the time. Yeah, exactly. And so, you're like, hey, brother, you better play basketball with me because we need a fifth person on this team or I'll beat you up. And then your brother became angry and he's like, you know what? I will play basketball with you. That never happened. If I was going to play basketball with my friends, I wouldn't. Uh, well, see, you, were, you, were, you, were, you, re- you, you represent the West in this amazing analogy that I'm making. Right. So your brother's like. It's falling apart uh, you're, around you're, me though. You're going to make me play basketball? Then I'm going to become the next Michael Jordan. I'm going to be the coolest basketballer. In fact, I'm going to break your hips while playing basketball. Ankles. You know how, you you know say, how we ankles. basketball we players ankles, always so breaking each break other's you. hips. Uh, <laughs> Break your ankles is what we say. I'm going to break your ankles. I'm going to become the greatest. That This is my metaphor for what Japan did after 1854. And this leads us all the way to Pearl Harbor, basically. They're like, okay, we have to join the West. Then we are going to become a Western power. We are, hey, the little island of Britain, the sun never sets on it because they dominate everything. We're going to dominate everything. We're going to go to China. We're going to get stuff there. We're going to capture different places like we we are going to embrace the west we're going to bring as many westerners in to teach us and they would bring like tutors to come and teach the 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 higher class people like how to speak english and so they embraced industrialization they embraced the modern world they they just brought it all in really effectively but also really bombastically and affected this great cultural change and I think, I mean, uh, this is, I'm vastly simplifying here, but it leads into the aggressive, atrocious militarization of Japan, which gets you to the nastiness of what happens in World War II, because they're, they're just like, we're going to be a power and you should respect us like a power. And we're going to get, all, we're going to recruit all our people to be part of our military and we're going to be awesome. And the world owes us the same respect that you give to America. And so you have these nationalist sort of Nazi style or some people would say Trump style kind of leaders come and rile the people up that way. And and you're combining all that with a vastly like in. So in the wake of this treaty in 1954 or 1854, I'm sorry, I'm going to get the right. They do open things up to Christians. I think in 1870, something Christianity is officially allowed in Japan, but there's been so little Judeo-Christian influence on that nation. So you have this brutal 
paganism combined with this kind of militarization and this desire to be a world power. And it just ends up expressing itself in the nastiest, most nihilistic acts of, well, I can't say that because that would be the Nazis, but some of the nastiest, most nihilistic stories from World War II are the way that the Japanese defended those islands to the death. Then committed suicide. Then committed suicide the way that they, I mean, I'm not telling any of our listeners anything that they don't know, but the way that they miss, maybe they don't know how much they mistreated the Chinese over that time. I mean, they're just stories of the massacre of like 8 million Chinese civilians and stuff like that. The Japanese were just thoroughly atrocious at that time, but they lost after we dropped two atomic bombs on them. On civilian populations. On civilian populations, oh, which... We don't have to do a podcast about whether that was the right move, but let's at least acknowledge that this was the group of people that we were up against. Like, we thought the only way we can end this is by doing this. And I, 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 I guess I can show my cards. I tend to disagree that that was, I don't think that we should I think have done we've that. said that on a podcast yeah, before. We've probably said that on a, but maybe we haven't. You disagree that we, I do not think we should have dropped the bomb. Okay. Right. Yeah. Me neither. But, mm hmm. Do understand, for the purposes of today's podcast, let that give you a window into how barbaric these people were that we were up against. Like, the argument, whether it was right or wrong, could be made. The only thing we can do is drop bombs on their civilians to actually end this. So, after 1945, the Japanese are occupied for a long time by the Americas, and then... They just get their act together, kind of, and become the super friendly, cool, happy. I'm sort of being sarcastic, but I mean, they're a very godless culture, but they're also a very advanced culture and a very friendly and in some ways prosperous culture to us in the West, Um, certainly much more so than China or than any other of the major Eastern powers that you could name. Technology, consumerism, entertainment. Right. These are all things, they share our proclivities, like the way that we want to use those things. A lot of, a lot of the way they want to use those things is the same, except still pagan, right. mainly. Yeah, unchecked by... Aggr- aggressively pagan. Unchecked by the Judeo-Christian influence that the West still has mm-hmm. to this day. So, that's like the most thumbnail sketch of the history of Japan ever, but it helps you place Kurosawa, who was born in 1910... So he's born while they're aggressive, aggressively westernizing. He grows up in a wealthy family, which is really because it's wealthy, because it's kind of an urbane cosmopolitan family of the type that Japan wanted at that time. They're very open to everything Western. And so Kurosawa grows up with Western theater, with Western motion pictures. His family wants him to be educated in these things. His brother, his beloved brother, Haigo Kurosawa, became a benchy for theaters showing foreign films, a benchy being someone who would just live narrate a foreign film and translate it into Japanese. So they, they show an English film and he just gets up and translates it on the spot and kind of like he's giving you the subtitles. And, and so Kurosawa actually wanted to be a painter, went and lived with his brother in Tokyo, which was like the cool, prosperous city that was becoming most advanced and most westernized and most industrialized at the time, also becoming the most sort of 
the home of all the leftist, artsy kind of bohemian people who Kurosawa fell in with while he tried to get his painting career going. But he's living with his brother, his beloved older brother, who is this benchy for theaters showing foreign films. And so his brother, who's very urbane, is introducing him to art and the circus and Western movies and all this stuff. So Kurosawa is just like the perfect cosmopolitan and kind of the perfect person to become the filmmaker who would, from Japan, reach out to the West and have the most influence and the most kind of feedback loop with us in the West because he just has all this Western influence. He can't get the painting career going and his brother, his beloved brother, commits suicide. And so he moves back in with his parents and is just depressed and doesn't know what he's going to do. And so he just, he's had no interest in becoming a director, but he applies at the company that would become Toho, the most famous Japanese producers of cinema. And they're just getting going. He applies as a, as a artist there and gets roped into being an assistant director, works his way up. And then right as Japan is getting involved in the war, World War II, he releases his first movie, Shanshiro Sagata, Sagata, however you say that. Uh, <laughs> you got me? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. My Japanese. Uh, I'm, I'm glad sure. you have my expertise. To yes, I'm glad I have you. Uh, which you've seen this movie, correct, Ben? I have seen it. Yes. Is it mm-hmm. any good? Yeah, it was fun. It's fun. I mean, it feels, it's, it's, uh, it's not an, as modern in, in its style as Yojimbo. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a good word for it, but it's like a black and white, an older, it's a black and white action movie that's, that's not as modern as Yojimbo. I don't know how to explain the way the editing style is. And it's been a long time since I've seen it, but it was still fun. Yeah. It's still, I don't know. I wish I wish I could describe it. The editing is the editing is odd because it's an old movie where you're watching guys have these judo fights, these grappling and throwing fights. Right. But it's it's fun. Well, it's 1943, so over in America we've got things like Citizen Kane and Casablanca, like all the classic golden Hollywood period films are coming out. So Mm-hmm. If you try to then say, what would a Japanese guy be doing with judo film during that same time period? Yeah. Yeah. It has some, it has some things that feel that it has some stylistic touches that you can, that you see in films, you know, if you like to pay attention to the way th- that things are framed or cut. And it has, what year did you say it came out? 43. 43. So in 45, there, there is a movie I randomly saw when I was a kid, which I think we had on VHS called Blood on the Sun, which is an... American movie about... I think we all had that on VHS. That's just weird. A James Cagney movie about an American reporter in Japan who's a judo guy. And it has these judo fight scenes. And they f- I remember as a kid that felt oddly modern. This is kind of jarring because you've got these really cool judo fights with James Cagney, who was not a star I knew anything about right. as a kid in this black and white movie. So, Sinshiro Sagat is a little like that, I guess. Yeah. Anyone seen Blood on the Sun? <laughs> nope. <laughs> At next staff pick, baby. <laughs> next staff pick. <laughs> uh, probably not. We got, a, we got a full year <laughs> <laughs> to wait with anticipation. Right. And yeah. I'm going to pick Titanic. Yeah, yeah Jake's like Avatar. Gonna, it's going to hurt me that, more than it hurts you, Jake. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. <laughs> but it's going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt Jake. Is yeah. that what Jake wants? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I think it is what he wants. Yeah, uh, well, anyway, <laughs> so Kurosawa's first hit movie comes out, his first movie and his first success comes out in 43. Of course, two years later, Japan has been defeated. They've been occupied. They've had two of their 
cities blown off the face of the map. Face of the map. The face of the map. Yes. English. Not my first language. <laughs> I don't know what nonsense it is. must be. <laughs> yes, nonsense is my first language. And so Kurosawa like has to walk this weird line where he has Japanese censors who are going to say, you've got to do things in a way that appeases the Japanese. Obviously, that's what a Japanese censor would say. But he's also got American censors, not just like we have to appease the international film market, but no, he's actually got Americans occupying Japan, looking over his shoulder, wanting to make sure that things aren't anti-American. And so he's actually the man that was born for that job. I mean, it's actually a tightrope that's easy for him to walk because he is so cosmopolitan and he is so wide-ranging in his sensibilities. And he goes on to make a bunch of masterpieces. He meets Toshiro Mifune, who auditions and gets a part in a movie called Drunken Angel. They do 15 movies together. Think DiCaprio and Scorsese or Scorsese and De Niro or uh, Spielberg and Harrison Ford, whatever your favorite director-actor combo where they just bring out the best in each other. Favreau and uh, Downey Jr., you know. Brian Johnson and <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Brian Johnson and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, yes. Uh, Edward Zwick and Tom Cruise. Christopher Nolan and... Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. <laughs> I mean, it really is the proto-Scorsese, but but Buffoonie's this powerhouse, and they make a bunch of classic films, some, some of which you may have heard the name of, even if you're not a huge international film. Things like Rashomon. Even if you are not a huge international film. Even, even if you're not a huge international film. You, know, you may be a human <laughs> being who just reads about these things. But you may still have heard of them. So Rashomon comes out in 1951. And that is a movie, if you've ever heard of the Rashomon effect, it's like Catch-22 where the name for something has become synonymous with the term for something because we don't have another term for what this thing is. So Rashomon is a movie about a murder or rape that happens. And five different people see it and they all tell their story and the story is different, not because they're lying, but because they simply remember it differently. So you'll hear people to this day talk about the Rashomon effect or Rashomon or, or reference it as, as a kind of a thing just in, in reporting and gathering a story. And you can imagine the kinds of things that that applies to, but very influential movie. Hey, we can flashbacks don't always have to tell the truth. Just coming mm -hmm. up with that. That unbeknownst to Kurosawa, is submitted to the Venice Film Festival, where it wins the Golden Lion, and then it sweeps across the Western world, wins an Honorary Academy Award, creates the market for Japanese films. At the time, people were really into Italian films, boring, neorealist <laughs> Italian films. Oh, yeah, I'm switching my staff pick to a boring... <laughs> Oh, boy. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Bicycle Thieves, I Rome Open City, things like that. I mean, there are some good movies in there, but man, Japanese cinema is so much more fun <laughs> than boring Italian neorealism. <laughs> hey, let's make a movie that's as boring as real life. <laughs> That'd be good. So that's what the Italians were doing. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Japanese were like, what if we make exciting, awesome avant-garde action movies and stuff like that? So suddenly there's this market principally defined by Kurosawa for Japanese films. And he comes out with a bunch of classics, many of which are more popular in the West than in Japan, although many of them were very popular in Japan. Things like Akiro, Seven Samurai, and 54 Hidden Fortress, 
1958. I guess if no, people don't know, Seven Samurai is the movie that Magnificent Seven ripped off. Hidden Fortress is famous for giving us the droids in Star Wars. Every Star Wars fan who reads anything about Star Wars has heard the name Hidden Fortress because it's just one of those things like George Lucas was referencing Hidden Fortress and nobody's seen it. Nobody knows why, but they know when we see those <laughs> two droids in the desert, it must be from, and I haven't seen it either. Have you seen Hidden Fortress? I've seen little, I've seen part of it. I don't know if I, I don't think I've seen the whole thing. I think I started it and thought it was boring. Now I'd, I'd probably find it more interesting. There you go. It was a long time ago. Yojimbo comes out in 61. Very influential. As we said, Fistful of Dollars. I think we already said this on the podcast. Maybe we only said it talking to each other. But Fistful of Dollars, a year or two later, rips it off so thoroughly that they end up, there's a lawsuit. And then Kurosawa ends up making a lot of money off of Fistful of Dollars, enough to finance many of his later films. Um, Sanjuro is a quick sequel done to Yojimbo from a screenplay that Kurosawa already had uh, laying around, but Yojimbo was so popular that they decided, how can we work this Sanjiro f- character into a script that we already have so that we have a quick sequel? And then Redbeard in 1965, after 16 movies, Kurosawa and Mifune part ways. They have, they have a traumatic time making that movie. It goes over budget. Mifune loses money on it one way or another because he has to keep his beard dyed red so we can't go and do other projects things like this so they have a kind of bitter parting and never work together again i think that they reconcile in the 90s like right before they both die at a friend's funeral they they reconcile so the story has a somewhat happy ending but they were this powerhouse together and for reasons that neither one of them really discussed all that much publicly they just broke apart and as soon as Mifune goes and does a bunch of cool commercial projects and things that he'll be remembered for. And we'll talk about him in a second. But unfortunately, and maybe this added to some of the bitterness, Kurosawa's career kind of spirals without having, you know, it be like Scorsese's making these movies, but DiCaprio's not in them anymore or, and De Niro's not in them. So is his name going to carry the brand all by itself? Well, no, not as much. And so he makes a bunch of things that I don't. I didn't even write, bother writing down the titles because our listeners are never going to watch them and neither will I. But the, the new Hollywood film brat generation, your Spielbergs and Scorsese's and De Palma's and people like this love Kurosawa and are very influenced by him. And I mean, Spielberg's whole cutting style, his whole style of how he films is so Kurosawa. And I suppose we'll talk about that. But they help Kurosawa get the funding and the, the budget and everything for some really awesome epic action movies that he makes in the 80s, including Kagamusha and Ran, Ran, which is based on King Lear. And it's just this crazy epic battle, like just the most epic version of King Lear that you could do. Hmm. And then Kurosawa dies. But I don't know. I guess we'll talk about as we go what makes him great. He was a wonderful visual stylist. He knew how to use the camera in a really dynamic way. And we'll point out some examples as we talk through this movie. So much of what he does has been influential on, of course, things like Star Wars, but also just things like comic books. Just Mm -hmm. the the way that we're framing these shots, the way that we're cutting on movement. When I say cutting on movement, all I mean is like, you can, let's say we're doing a scene where Jake takes a sip from his coffee. We can't, and we're, we got. We want to punch in for a close up. We can have Jake sip the coffee and then put the coffee down, and then cut to a close up. 
Or we can have Jake start to pick up the coffee, and then when the coffee's about two-thirds Jake lips, we punch in for the close-up. Cutting on the movement like that really gives a sense of fluidity and can really disguise the cut. Like your eye doesn't notice. If, if it's just Jake sitting there and then we cut, the only thing that our eye has to notice is the camera cuts. And so it feels more kind of like a cut. But if you cut on the movement, which is what somebody like a Spielberg is always going to do, then you, you can have this You have really- an object that you're fixated on that you just have to pick up in the next frame. Right. And you don't notice everything. Exactly. And so it sounds so simple, but you watch some dorky fist fight scene from, you know, a gangster movie from the thirties or something (laughs) and they don't do it and it feels so stagey and silly. And then you just think about how the samurai scenes are done in a movie like this or, or an even better action movie with much more action, like seven samurai. And it's like, Oh wow. There's a sense of fluid motion to this that, that is really modern. That, that that has come all the way down into action cinema and into just good cinema cinema to these to this day. And a thing that good filmmakers have and bad filmmakers don't. If you want to start to understand why we pick on people like Peter Jackson or some of the Marvel directors or George Lucas when he's not being inspired and is doing the prequels, it's because they won't do things like that and it'll make the scenes feel really, really, really static and like we just couldn't be bothered to think of a dynamic, interesting way to do what we're doing, which is telling stories with visuals. So Kurosawa is great at composition. He's great at all kinds of things. But the thing to really notice when you watch his movies is the fluid movement, the movement of the camera. If you're familiar with Spielberg and the way that Spielberg will often have one shot sort of turn into another shot all in one camera without a cut. So it's a close-up, but then the person gets out of the close-up and suddenly it becomes a wide shot as we look at the background and then it swivels over and suddenly it's a two-shot because there's two people standing there or somebody walks and it leads us into an over-the-shoulder shot. Those kinds of really fluid things. Kurosawa kind of helped pioneer a lot of that and create a lot of that grammar. And people like Spielberg have, have him to thank. So it's the kind of thing that... You, you can take for granted because it does, it's, it's meant it's ubiquitous now it's ubiquitous mm-hmm. and it's meant not to call attention to itself the whole point is that it just flows but uh, but it, it's really done with as much care as you see kurosawa do it in like a jimbo yeah 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 exactly and he uses he uses a deep depth of field so you have stuff going on in the foreground and the background and sometimes i want to say even the middle ground mm-hmm. as well it seems that seems true yeah the we most obvious examples are are things like Anytime Sanjiro is watching the rival gangs, you know, you'll have all these shots where there, there's like two bad guys in the foreground doing something and then you, you know, Sanjiro's in the background just smiling or reacting and it'll be framed. So there's, there's like three different levels of things going on oftentimes. So you can look for things like that. Uh, Kurosawa says, all, all my movies ask the question, why can't people be happy together? That's how he summed up his... Which it's a very good question that Yojimbo ex- examines in depth. <laughs> Why can't people be happy together? Because there's a samurai who's going to make sure they kill each other. Exactly. Well, they all deserve to die and he took it upon himself. He also said, the other famous Kurosawa quote is, take myself, subtract cinema, and nothing remains. So. That's pretty wait, sad. That's pretty sad. Yeah. Wait, what? Take myself. Subtract. It's like uh, okay, if I said, okay, I just got it. Take okay. Nathan. That subtract podcasting, second. and nothing remains. No yeah. marriage, no friendships. Just Nathan is podcasting. <laughs> Be like that kind of thing. 
I mean, the other things that you'll often see in his movies are the things that Japanese cinema is obsessed with in general, which is the sense of loss, the sense of the existential drama of man. Anybody making a movie in a, in a post-Hiroshima world is, is just going to understand the fragility of life and the kind of irony of the human, ex- human experience in a way that not everyone else is necessarily going to understand it. And so the Japanese are very good at existentialism, I'd say even in a way that the fruity French and Italians and some of the people who are more famous for being existential aren't because because the Japanese actually have something to be existential about, which gives their movies a kind of weight and a kind of mournfulness. Even the end of Yojimbo, which is a pretty silly, sarcastic movie, we're suddenly going to give the deaths some weight and some meaning and give the bad guy a little bit of something. What I remember watching my one Italian neorealist film, La Aventura, is that sense of, is a sense of emptiness and meaninglessness. But Japanese, even when I was a kid, I saw this in the little bit of anime that I got. And then as I got older and I saw more Japanese movies, it was a quality that I loved, which was that mournful stuff you're talking about. Not just life is empty, but life is beautiful and sad. Oh, also it's empty. Right. (laughs) It's, It's even in Spirited Away, which is a kid's movie that's not uh, maybe an appropriate kid's movie for younger kids. Right. Yeah, I think the Italians and the French are both just like, life's meaningless, and so here it is. We're bored. I mean, that's that's the undertone of a lot of those movies from the 60s. And like, Lava Ventura is literally a woman disappears on an island, and her friends can't be bothered to care. And I just summed up pretty much the entire movie. I mean, it's three hours of that. And it's about sex. And yeah, and everybody wants to have sex, but no one's really satisfied by sex. And, and that's, that's so, so much of, so much of those people, Antonio and Fellini and Arnais Martin know these names, but the Japanese, like I said, they have something to be existential about. And so there's something, there's something more mournful, something more in touch with the eternal realities, something even, even when they don't have anything to say about them, particularly they're at least aware of just the weight of of human existence in a way that can be dangerous but can also be very appealing and me and ben also obviously like because we like this cinema yeah i like it a lot i also feel more careful about it these days just more like this stuff is like a drug Mm -hmm. not yo jimbo (laughs) but some (laughs) other head of joe jimbo yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) but some other things i've seen it's yeah, it could be it could be suicidal. I mean, it can just yes, be so. That's right. They are obsessed with suicide. Mm-hmm. Oh, the other thing that they are obsessed with that I, I think Americans just aren't is this intersection between the old and the new. I mean, sure, the Marvel movies kind of want to say capitalism is bad, but also in every one of those movies, Tony Stark is so cool, and the fact that he has this tech is so cool, and maybe the overt message of the movie is that. Stark Industries was bad, but the visual language and the way that the movie's set up and what we're watching on the screen and what we're being asked to cheer for just says technology's cool. Being- except in Winter Soldier. Well, except in Winter Soldier. <laughs> yeah. And the Marvel movies are just confused and it's hard to pull any kind of message out of them. <laughs> From one movie to the next, but or even within in the Avengers. same. Avengers. Yeah. It suddenly gets bad in both of those. In- yeah, in- I mean, I think every one of those movies is going to say, like, the old guard was bad, capitalism was bad, this was bad. Uh, But also, Tony Stark's just cool, and we're not supposed to ask too many questions about that, ultimately. You know, we're not supposed to be, like, 
he built an Iron Man, and there was something good about it, something necessary, but also something terrible. Well, Iron Man 3 is all about that, Nathan. Yeah. You follow the themes of that movie. That's what it says it's take about. take it seriously. The second Spider-Man movie. <laughs> okay, just compare it to <laughs> Japanese cinema where it's like the bad guy has a gun. And what are we going to do about that? And that's weird. And he's introducing it into this feudal system. And Japanese movie after Japanese movie after Japanese movie is obsessed with the intersection between the old and the new, between the old ways and the new ways, between what we're losing and what we're gaining, between technology and... Which it also fetishizes. Think of all the the mech animes. It just, it's, it's like in love with it. It's in love with drawing it and watching it move and... But if you think about the aesthetic of like the, the, the Matrix ripped off, it's always going to be like this weird amalgamation of old and new. And mm-hmm. there's going to be a guy with a Camino and a sword, but also he's going to have sunglasses and <laughs> awesome guns. And <laughs> But there's tension about that, I think, that mm-hmm. we don't have. It's not like Tony Stark is actively dressing in a cowboy costume because he's part cowboy but also wearing his Iron Man. We're not that concerned with the old, actually. <laughs> we just like the new. I know you can find ca- lots of counterexamples and themes from these movies that go against that, but uh, but larger picture, we're not mourning the past like, like they are, I don't think. They are just obs- I, I think also they're just obsessed. I think they have a sense of I mean, dwell. I think you can make the case that all Westerns are, in fact, mourning the past and the obsession with Westerns and American cinema is exactly that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. That's a really Mm -hmm. good point. I think in the samurai movie, uh, what Kurosawa did was say, hey, this is the way that Americans deal with the death of their past. And ours are samurai, not cowboys. So let me take the Western and adapt it to my, to samurai and my Japanese context with my sensibilities. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that that's true. The interesting, I think the thing that maybe I would add to that is we had to wait for uh, somebody like Kurosawa to tell us how to mourn our past because we didn't really make the mournful Westerns until the 60s and the 70s and stuff like that. Yeah, you can point to the searchers and stuff like that. But basically, most of John Wayne's career is, isn't it cool that we're expanding and that we're building these territories and these hardy, awesome people are carving out a space among the barbarians it's pretty there's an optimism yeah yeah there's a there's a heroic triumph yay celebration of our past but there's also part of the appeal still is the good old days yes yes absolutely yeah and that's why that's why that whole generation that grew up with those movies that's what they do is they sit as they're dying and have classic westerns on all the time right at deafening volumes. Yes. Hmm. That's interesting because I, I want to say the Japanese aren't using, well, no, it's complicated. Sorry, this is a half-baked thought. I wonder how much they're using it to mourn their past and how much they're just using it as we find ourselves between traditional values and modern values and we don't know what to do. To mm-hmm. process it. Yeah. To, yeah, but it, I'm trying to nail down what the difference is between what they're doing and what our Westerns are doing. I think we all agree there's a difference, but... There's also a similarity. Maybe it's just a difference of degrees. Like they're mourning their past a little bit more than we are. They don't have the same optimism about the new stuff. But I don't know. Maybe maybe our Westerns come pretty close. Um, 
yeah, I don't have a fully baked thought on that either. What I will say is that even non-samurai films among the Japanese are just often about the modern world versus many, many of Kurosawa's to take the pertinent example of his movies set in now, uh, set in present day are just about people who don't know how to handle. There, there's one about a guy's house who is that he loses his house to a military occupation, I think during world war two, and he just doesn't want to move out um, because it's his house where his children grew up and stuff like that. You know, mm-hmm. Kurosawa is going back to this theme again and again and again and many japanese filmmakers and artists are you should take a bunch of balloons and blow them up and then have the house just float away i don't like that movie that's me my, neither that's a deep my deep thought on up i was gonna say okay yeah miyazaki whatever you were just saying it's true of his movies too his animated movies yeah what were you just saying <laughs> went out of my head. <laughs> Thanks. Up. Sort of flew, floated away. <laughs> like balloons had been attached to my mind. <laughs> well, Miyazaki's movies are all set in the past. Even the ones that, like like even something like Totoro, where it doesn't really matter. It's set in the 1950s. It's, that's true, yeah. And they have this kind of... Sorry. No, go ahead. They, they have this kind of mournful intersection between the fairy world and the new world, the old and the, the new. Spirited Away. Spirited Away is modern, but it's all about the gods of the past. Yeah. And stuff and the traditions of the past and, and and how you can lose that in a modern world of technology. How does that work with Kiki's Delivery Service, which just ada- adopts? I haven't seen that one. I think she's a witch with a black cat and a broom. Mm-hmm. And it's coming of age story, but there's really nothing about that I can recall of Japanese weird gods and stuff like you see in other Miyazaki movies. Mm. I thought it was a curiosity for that reason. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I just haven't seen that one. Well, that movie is, A, I don't like that quality about that movie, actually. I wish it, I wish it had more tension. It seems like he wants to go out of his way to just say, the old gods are good and everything. We need witches. And it feels like an assertive kind of statement of by Miyazaki of, wouldn't it be cool if we lived in a world where the old ways never went away and we're just... Yeah, but those are Western old ways right which is part of what's unique about yeah yeah it's a weird it's a weird movie Hmm. like hal gets japaneseified right but kiki's delivery service doesn't yeah to to my memory at least yeah i've seen it in the last couple months i'd like to see it now yeah well next next sanity shelf sanity shelf (laughs) (laughs) we have so many things that start with that (laughs) well listen we can we can Talk about this stuff all day. Maybe the only point, maybe to perfect my point, the Japanese are just slightly more extreme on both ends. Like their embrace of the new is in some ways more extreme. Mm-hmm. Also, their mourning of the old is in some way like the the intersection of those two things is is more combative and more close close to the surface maybe than much of the way that the West processes its past, even in the places where we mourn it. But let's talk about Mifune real quick. Born 1920, if you're keeping track, same year as Kurosawa. I want to say died the same year as Kurosawa. No, not the same year as Kurosawa. He was born 1910. Ah, never mind. Born in the Shandong province of Japan, or sorry, of China. That's the important thing. His parents were Japanese, but they were, of all things, Methodist missionaries to a Chinese region that was occupied by Japan at the time. And so Mifune is also a bit of a cosmopolitan. He doesn't even set foot on Japan until he is 20 when he's drafted into the army for World War II. 
And his dad was a photographer in addition to being a Methodist missionary. So he became an aerial photographer, did that for the duration of World War II. The important thing about Mufuni is he, he hated being in the army. He was beaten up by his superiors. He just really did not like structure and authority and just vowed to himself that he'd never bow the knee to anybody again after serving in the Japanese army during World War II. Which, to be fair, the Japanese army, as we've alluded to earlier earlier during World War II, does not sound like a very nice place to serve, even as an aerial photographer. But it gives him this kind of very 1960s, by the time of Yojimbo, this kind of Jack Nicholsonian, anti-authorian, anti-authoritarian bent that served him well his whole life and made him a very popular star. But he had no thoughts of being a star. He got out of the army and was just going to be a photographer. And so a lot like Kurosawa's story, just went to a film studio to say, hey, do you need an apprentice photographer, need an assistant or whatever? And they're like, you're really good looking. Do you want to do a, what, a screen test? And so he goes in, he auditions, he gets some film roles. He's this really intense young man. You see some of it. I mean, you see it boiling beneath the surface in Yojimbo. But if you've ever seen something like The Seven Samurai or some of his other movies, he can just be absolutely ferocious, running, yelling, creeping around, jumping off of things. Like he's this, he can bring so much powerful energy. I mean, I, who would we compare him to? Jack Nicholson would be one for sure. A young Marlon Brando, people like that, people who just walk into a room and command it with the energy and the power that they exude. Maybe there's some non-actors we could compare that to, but Mifune had that quality. And Kurosawa saw him audition and was like, I think I have a quote here. It was as frightening as watching a wounded beast trying to break loose. I was transfixed, said Kurosawa. And so Mifune stars in the next 16 of his movies, or maybe in this, the, the, in 16 of his next 17 movies. And then as I've alluded to before they, or as I talked about before, they parted ways in 65, did reconcile, but never worked together again. Mifune's fame largely rests on his time with Kurosawa. He did do other things, certainly. And he did some, he was good with different languages. Like I said, he grew up in China. So, he was he was cosmopolitan. He spoke English. He appeared in a number of decently well-regarded American movies and some very not well-regarded one. He would he did work for Spielberg for that classic movie that we all love, 1941. He plays the the Japanese never seen that commander. One. I've never seen it either. Be an interesting one, but also who wants to waste time watching 1941, a movie that even Spielberg doesn't feel good about. But he he was in Hell in the High Pacific, <coughs> Tora Tora Tora. The uh, TV adaptation of Shogun, which is one of those novels that I always saw at the library, or like, I never, I never knew who that at the guy used was. bookstore. Yeah, it was just, <laughs> yes, yes, a lot of people bought a lot of copies and then <laughs> didn't have any more use for those copies. That's right. Of Shogun, what does he play in Tora Tora Tora? I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know Tora Tora Tora. That's a Jap- Is that that's like? Is that a Pearl Harbor movie? It's Pearl he, Harbor. He movie. played Admiral Yamamoto a couple times. I saw in his bio. That's what so I wondered. Mm-hmm. He, I bet. He gets the that that then he gets that bit in uh, Tora 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 that of I fear we have just awakened a sleeping giant. You know, <laughs> yes, uh, like is like huh. big payoff towards the end. Huh. 
That sounds like the kind Never of thing that he ended up doing in American movies. Like if you got to have a guy come into kind of like Ken Watanabe. Yeah, yeah, today. exactly, exactly. <laughs> he did he did the Ken Watanabe parts. I'm sad to say, Tora, Tora, Tora. I'm sure we can figure this out. Yep. Is that who he plays? I haven't got that for yet. Let's see here. What's his name? Mafuni. I know that you have more than one use of Mafuni. You silly thing. Yep. It's. Uh, I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. There he is right there. There he is. Mifune. Well, actually, if you guys want the fun fact about Tora Tora Tora, originally an English director was supposed to direct all of the English parts and all of all people, Kurosawa was supposed to direct the Japanese parts. I was just seeing that, yeah. Kurosawa dropped out, I think, after about two weeks just because uh, his production methods had grown so cumbersome and he didn't work well with them or whatever. I don't know the story of that one off the top of my head, but they didn't work well together and Kurosawa dropped out. But Kurosawa was famous for his drinking. He was famous for his driving and drinking at the same time. He was famous for his hard living for some of his women type stuff. He was famous for his famous for his perseverance and dedication to his craft and and the weird kind of proto Daniel Day-Lewis things he would do to prepare for the role of Yojimbo. I believe he studied lions. He went and studied lions as one does. Um, (laughs) And hey, oh, hey, he crafted a iconic character that way. So whatever it takes, I guess. Here's a (laughs) quote, which comes to us from Wikipedia via Akira Kurosawa's biography, something like an autobiography, it was called. Uh, Quote, this is Kurosawa talking. Mifune had a kind of talent I had never encountered before in the Japanese film world. It was, above all, the speed with which he expressed himself that was astounding. The ordinary Japanese actor might need 10 feet of film to get across an impression. Mifune needed only three. The speed of his movements was such that he said in a single action what took ordinary actors three separate movements to express. He put forth everything directly and boldly, and his sense of timing was the keenest I had ever seen in a Japanese actor. And yet, with all his quickness, he also had surprisingly fine sensibilities. Which that reminds me of the one other thing I should say about Kurosawa. Kurosawa grew up with silent film, loved silent film, and the style of acting that he was acting his actors, Mm -hmm. asking his actors to do was basically a silent film. Very expressive. If someone's sad, Mm -hmm. they fall to their knees, they put their hands on their head. If someone's angry. So you watch this movie and you're like, you, you watch Yojimbo with no context and you're like, do Japanese people just act like that? The answer is no. Nobody is acting naturalistically. The fact that the old man just yells the whole time and is angry because he's angry. Mm-hmm. And the bad guy is, the stupid guy is the silliest example. The, what is it? The, the brother or cousin or whatever mm-hmm. he is. The, the bad guy who's like a Looney Tunes character, going to find a rabbit and name it George type <laughs> character yep. with his buck teeth. This is all very heightened, not naturalistic, not the way that real Japanese people, it's it's not like you missed something like, oh, if I just understood Japanese culture, I would know that they all act like crazy impressionistic Nicolas Cage weirdos. No, Kurosawa just liked that style, but it does translate really well for Americans. It might be one of the reasons why he's almost more respected in America because you watch this movie and it's kind of exaggerated enough that you, you you barely need the subtitles. You just, you know what's going on. You know who these characters are, what their personalities are. It's all so starkly defined. One other thing I should say about Yojimbo is it was based uh, sort of, you know, you can blame 
Leone for ripping off Yojimbo, but Kurosawa, as as we said, did watch all the John Ford films and all the westerns and stuff, and he was ripping them off. He, although not as directly as Leone, Leone ripped him off, he also took a lot of the plot from a Dashiell Hammett novel. He always said it came from the novel The Glass Key, but if you read The Glass Key, it, The Glass Key does not feel like Yojimbo. I think he just mixed up the titles because Red Harvest is about the Continental Op going to a small town, which is dominated by two sets of gangsters playing them off of against each other and getting everyone killed. And it's pretty straight. Jack Reacher didn't do it first? Jack Reacher did it 400th. Jack Reacher did it well. I'm not going to say he did it best, but Jack, <laughs> that first Jack Reacher movie is pretty cool. But Based on novels though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I've, I've read one or two of them when I was really bored one day, which is about all it takes to read one of them many years ago. And Jack Reacher always goes to a town and there's a surprising amount of small American <laughs> towns full of evil gangs. <laughs> and uh, he generally plays them off against each other, breaks a few heads, uh, snaps a few necks and saves a lady or two. And everything's good. Gets an Amazon Prime series. Gets an Amazon Prime series. No, that's uh, not Jack Reacher. That's... No, it is Jack Reacher. Oh, did Jack Reacher get one too? Yep. Right up there with Jack Ryan? Yep. Huh. Who's Jack Reacher in the Amazon Prime series? Uh, Some B guy who played like... Oh, I had to look him up. Hmm. Played like Aquaman in some DC show. Oh. Like... Cool. I don't know. I don't know. He's a big dude. Like the novels then. Like the novels portray. I had to look that up too. Which is awesome. I mean, it's so stupid that Cruz Cruz played him of all people. No, he's a a mammoth, huge dude. You read the novels and it's like, they they should get, you could get The Rock, but I think like- Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman. Dave Bautista, if he wanted it to be really serious. Any of those guys. Although ironically, you got like one of Cruz's best- action performances ever. Alan Richardson. Out of it. Alan Richardson. Richardson. Yeah, it is one of Cruz's best yeah, action. It's when he is right at the peak of when he had transitioned sort of to Krav and then that that studio version of Krav that's like a that's trademarked now. Don't know. So I think it was what Bourne used. Yeah. There's there's a huh. there's a very Krav Maga style of fighting that is like a Hollywood, there's a dude and he's trademarked it. Huh. But it's like it pulls in a little judo and it pulls in a little jujitsu and mm-hmm. a little bit of some other things to make it distinct. Right. That's cool. But, so so this is there he is next to a dude. Oh yeah. He's a, he's a big man. That's a Jack Reacher for you. Although he looks a little young. Jack Reacher needs to be sort of weary and weathered, I would say. Ron Perlman, like a, a younger Ron Perlman, would actually be a pretty good, great pull for Jack Reacher. Well, speaking of Jack Reacher, it wouldn't be a reach to say, you know, Jimbo's a great movie and one that we're talking about today. So, big picture thoughts, Ben, from this viewing of Yo Jimbo. Big picture thoughts. Hmm. It's a cool movie. It's well made. It's It's grim and mean and sarcastic but because it's in black and white even Yojimbo cuts a guy's arm off early on even that it's not I don't know black and white makes that kind of thing feel much more you can get away with a lot more you can get away with a lot more if it were in color it would be a pretty gross movie I dare say but in black and white it's kind of feels more like a fabled or something is that the right way to put it no I think so I think so I mean it felt 
I, I cannot tell a lie. I was chuckling during most of the intense violence during this movie just because mm-hmm. it strikes that weird tone of very similar to what Sergio Leone did in the the Fistful of Dollars and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where it's just kind of funny how, or, or the Mad Max movies, mm-hmm. it's, it's just always kind of funny how bad everybody is and how stupid everybody is. And <laughs> uh, when somebody gets it, there's always going to be some wry understatement. I mean, uh-huh. the, the first three guys that get it right before they do, you know, <laughs> what's his face? Sandro says, it'll hurt. Which is just a great... (laughs) We're not afraid to die, but it'll hurt. It'll hurt. (laughs) He just chuckles. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's just a lot of... It's just all approached with kind of a deadpan wit that that makes it funny. Closest really modern analog, would it be like uh, Guy Ritchie? Stuff like his his earlier stuff. Yeah, Snatch or something. Although that stuff is more objectionable. I don't know. No. I really think Uh, the analog that most people will know would be the good, bad, and the ugly. Yeah. Which I imagine. I mean, that's that's very. It's just Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Or if you want something with more humor than Eastwood, although he has that right humor in those moments. Yeah. Absolutely. So that is the best analog, but you could say that Harrison Ford. <sighs> yeah. Or mm-hmm. something like that, like is just the sillier and more kid-friendly version of that. Yeah. I, I was just trying to think of someone who wanted to do even even more updated version of that right humor, kind of next level edginess and meanness though to it. Yeah, I mean, I think Clint Eastwood built a career on it. Yeah, definitely. And then actually, I'd say Mel Gibson would be the 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 violent, cartoonish, nastier, more mm. crude, less witty version of it. Not as worth going back to. But if you remember stupid '90s Gibson, like some of the later Lethal Weapons or Payback uh, yeah. or things like yeah, that, yeah, yeah, he really enjoys that. Well, A, I think he really enjoys like the, I'm the hero and I'm getting the snot beat out of me scene, which this oh, movie yeah. helped pioneer. And I've got to crawl back from it. Gibson loves that kind of self Well, we didn't stuff. actually see him get the crap beat out of him though. Yeah. But we have to spend a long time with Sanjiro being Just beaten crawling up around. and crawling around. Yeah. And Gibson loves that stuff. And he loves the wry comedy of something really painful is happening to me, but I'm kind of like. Kind of make a joke about gonna it. Make a joke on it. I mean, the other thing that's obviously downstream and came out two years after Yojimbo, but grew into a phenomenon five years after Yojimbo is James Bond and the particularly yeah, Sean Connery. Yeah, I was Connery. thinking about Bond too. Mm. Yeah. The sort of wry, I'm going to kill you, but we're all in on the joke mm-hmm. <laughs> stuff. Well, and then everything downstream from that mm. down to stupid Terminator movies. Right. Whatever yeah. else, right? Yeah. Stallone and Schwarzenegger are definitely... Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. Yeah, definitely Bruce Willis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all, you just, you, you name any action star of the last 30 years and. Bruce Willis who made a cowboy movie that was Yojimbo. Well, he actually made a movie called, what is it? Last Man Standing. There we go. That's it. Which is a terrible movie. I've um, heard that it is. Boring and stupid and ugly and violent, but, but also boring. Like it's, you know, just, it's stupid. It's, it's a bad movie. Uh, one star, thumbs down. But. That movie actually lists like Akira Kurosawa in the credits. Like they didn't plagiarize the plot like a thousand people have. They they just bought the rights. Bought or the rights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For Bruce Willis. But Bruce Willis goes into a town. It's prohibition era gangsters and he plays them off and there's a billion shootouts. And it actually, when you on paper, it sounds kind of cool. Bruce Willis as a 1920s gangster mm-hmm. doing Yojimbo sounds like, yeah. Sounds awesome. Sign me up. Yeah. But. No wonder it got greenlit, at least. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a great pitch. I mean, it's it's one of those stories that can't miss if it's done well, but not a good movie. 
Jake, general, or did you have any more general thoughts before we... No, I, yeah. I liked it. Jake, this is your first time watching the movie and you had the most, uh, what's the word, experience not clouded by anything else or by... Yeah. Pre, 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 so what, what's, what's your general thoughts on this thing? I kind of love it. It was fun. It was funny. There were, I, I didn't, I didn't know where to place it in time. Mm -hmm. It felt so much like a 60s spaghetti Western type mm -hmm. thing to me, like from the moment, from our first opening shot of Mifune. Yeah. And the close-ups, the uncomfortable close-ups on his face where we're like not even going to have his whole face mm -hmm. or head in the shot or we're going to have it in and out. This kind of like very, you missed a spot shaving there to this yeah, morning, buddy. Yeah, this is very yeah. like okay. This is spaghetti western. This is Clint Eastwood. Like even I can imagine, you know, Leone. I've always said Leone, but I trust you're right on that. I, I'm not bad with pronunciation. I do not claim to be right. I, I got Mafoni right because I looked it up. I'm I'm looking up Sergio Leone. Uh, yeah, it may well be Leone, but uh, but anyway, I'm gonna wait for Ben. I don't know. I don't remember how to read. It's almost like <laughs> these phonetics. Like, like I just watched, uh, or I can't. Like part of you, part of me was sitting there thinking, I wonder if Leon had had Eastwood just watch Mafune, Mafuni, and say, "This is this is the character. This is the vibe. This is the energy. This is what I screen tested you for. This is." how you need to look. This is how you chew on your cigarette, the way he's chewing on this toothpick thing. This is how you, or your cigar. I, I suspect that's true because if you watched old like episodes of Rawhide, like Clint Eastwood did not, he was not born with the Clint Eastwood persona and it does seem so directly derivative of this and we know, in fact, the whole movie was, uh, was full of dollars was derivative of this, so. Yeah. Leone. Leon, Leone. Leone. Yeah. Leone. We were all wrong. Okay. We were all wrong. Yeah. So anyhow, um, but yeah, so I I sat there thinking about I basically just had Clint Eastwood and Star Wars in particular, uh, Clone Wars, yeah, in my head as the things that are the most like one to one direct. Like wow. Star Wars is just paying homage. Mm -hmm. Well, particularly your boy Felone, right? Felone, Felone, Dive Felone. Philoni. Philoni. Love. Philoni. He obviously Philoni. loves Kurosawa. Yeah. And, and and has dedicated whole episodes like in like this episode dedicated to the memory of Akira Kurosawa. Stuff like that. Right. So you see a lot of his characters, the bounty hunters and things like that. Cad Bane is a very, is a very Kurosawa type of a character. Well, the direction he took Ahsoka a, after she was a kid and just his whole conception of what a hero is and yep it's very samurai yeah in this in this style and mm -hmm. uh, and so yeah i see the i see it in all kinds of other places but just sort of like either we're trying to do it and do it do we're trying to do this and we're trying to do this better that's leone mm -hmm. but i am a huge fanboy and i love all this stuff and every chance i get i'm going to tip my hat to it that's Filoni. Right. And so... And that's Filoni and Favreau because half the episodes of The Mandalorian... The Mandalorian are the same are, way. Are these, that's right. These kinds of small town exactly. adventures. Lots of quiet moments waiting for things to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, those, are the, those are the two biggest reference points I had in my head. And I had fun with it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was funny. 
there was nothing, I guess the only part where I was sort of like, all right, was the part where we were just dragging our half-dead body all over the place. I think I kind of like that part. It's just like, man, this guy. I'm, I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. Uh, I always, I love it when a hero is really down on his luck. Although I was, it, it just, makes me nervous when he's crawling around. Like even knowing, <laughs> like I've seen this movie, I've seen movies. Yeah, and I, I know how it's going to work out, but I hate the too. like, there's people looking for me and I'm, I can hardly stand up like, and I'm crawling across the street. That stuff just makes me nervous in a kind of unpleasant way. Like, come on, let's like, I might fast forward it if yeah, you guys weren't there. I mean, that's kind of, I guess that's all I mean is how I felt. I, it, but it wasn't even so much that I was nervous for him. It was just like, you can't milk those scenes too long or you lose credibility. And right. I felt like he ran the danger of milking that scene. Yeah, well. Much. He tried try to get too much out of it, try mm-hmm. to make it play for too long. Where I, it Maybe in 1960, that wasn't true. But for me, it, it was just like, we know he's going to get to some place where he can recover and come back. So... Because we also have another hour of this movie left. Like, I don't know, guys. Can we can we not just pretend like... Uh, can we stop pretending like he's going to be found at every turn? Yeah. I, I know what you mean. <laughs> I, I often tell Although I did like the part where we just sat, where he wanted to sit and watch. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was really funny. <laughs> Everything, once he was in the casket, <laughs> he sat and watched and then... We tricked the halfwit into carrying him and then tricked the halfwit into not helping bury him. Yeah. It was, <laughs> I enjoyed that. And those those play like, I watched a, a John Wayne movie and I thought that was a good gag. That type of thing was a good gag. That type of character <laughs> yeah. is a good gag to throw in. Of all the things I could rip off about John Wayne, <laughs> it was his great sense of humor in those John Ford movies, <laughs> which is oftentimes the thing that people think is the stupidest of those movies. Um, he did it and did it in a way that I found... Uh, lovable. <laughs> well, I like I like John Ford's corny sense of humor. I guess I, I like McClintock and things like that. Uh, as stupid as they are, maybe because precisely because they're stupid. Maybe I'm laughing at them a little bit, and maybe yeah, I was but they know they're or, stupid. Yeah, exactly. I think I'm actually laughing with them, and I think I was actually laughing at this movie or with this movie. Uh-huh. Oh too. yeah, yeah, we were. Um, we're having fun. They didn't. There's so much sophistication in other places that. It's just, you know what the jokes are. Right. Uh, and, and and they're well-placed, too. So, you have that, like, at the top, the it'll hurt. And then you're like, okay. Like, he's let me know how sophisticated his sense of humor is about this whole thing. Right. And and a lot of movies like that don't, don't do that. They don't create the expectation that they have a smart view of this silly thing. Right. And so, then you get caught sort of, like, wondering... But this is this wasn't that. Yeah, that's the, the most directly analogous thing to that. I would say is the Mad Max movies because they are so stupid in some ways, so over the top, so ridiculously out there. But also, they have a really wry, understated sensibility that they bring to that that out thereness. And so you have mm-hmm. like in Fury Road, you have the guy on the the electric guitar who's strapped <laughs> to the thing playing it and shooting uh, out flames, and shooting out flames. And <laughs> it's just like, uh, that's just Shakespeare though. That's what you want in a, in a thing like that. Yeah. Right. Like that Shakespearean ability to play to the peanut gallery while winking at the, uh, the, the, the nobles up in the balcony. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, I, think that, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Well, it's and it's too bad that what people think of, people don't think of it as Shakespeare. They they think of it as dad stuff because our dads 
all laughed at that kind of thing. But Shakespeare was dad. Shakespeare made dad jokes. Dad jokes are actually just jokes. <laughs> dumb, paternalistic people. Too uh, paternalistic for me. Yeah, exactly. Well, we don't like paternalistic. We just like paternal. That's what we've established. I think on Mike. My big thoughts, I like this movie, I've seen this movie, I've seen a lot of Kurosawa movies, and I like, tend to like them. I don't think that this is my favorite. I'm sort of sorry, given that we may be introducing some people to this whole world that we didn't do Seven Samurai, but three hours is just a big ask, and I think we didn't want to do that. But Seven Samurai is, A, has a lot more cool extended action scenes, and B, has likable characters that you care about which i think <laughs> if i'm a test then i'm i'm much more likely to actually watch seven samurai for having watched uh, an hour and 50 minutes of yojimbo yeah i but, think yeah well i'm not trying to criticize yojimbo though i mean I, I i love it and i'm glad we watched it and i think some people will be glad that they watched it and so they should be yeah i mean we could sit here and debate the best jumping on point but this was your staff pick, Ben. So you it obviously was. thought Yojimbo was a better jumping on point than I did. It, I mean, adding an extra hour and ten minutes to a staff pick is a big ass. Yes, I think it's so. just so big. I and think. also, Seven Samurai is a much is a seven years older mm-hmm. movie. This one is just going to feel more modern. Even even the sword fights are going to. I know you said Seven Samurai has more action. And I think you're right, but the action in this one was more when I watched. The two of them. Yes. This this one was more satisfying. It just had more of that sense of quick, like, I'm a modern filmmaker. I know what to do with action. I came before all the action you've ever seen. I'll show you how how right. it's done. I would agree with that. I think Seventh Samurai, if what you're looking for is an action scene, like if your sensibilities have been formed by Spielberg or whatever, so you just want something that lasts for five minutes or ten minutes, mm-hmm. Seventh Samurai isn't going to be as dynamic, but it will give you that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Yojimbo... If your sensibilities have been formed by the Western and you just like that, that cool, like it's all about the build up and then bang, 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 bang. which I love. Yeah. Then that's this, how you kill Darth Maul. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, spoilers, spoilers, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lucas did it. And then. Well, there's places where Lucas should have done it. I've always kind of thought that the Obi-Wan in, I, I like Revenge of the Jedi or whatever, the Revenge of the Sith, but. <laughs> What we actually should have done is a samurai battle between Kenobi and Skywalker. Like We're going to get it. Yeah. I, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be awesome. Filoni will do a better. I, th- I think let the big silly cartoon battle be as it was between Palpatine and Yoda. And that's like the best part of any. Because he says, my little green friend. And then throws chairs at him for an hour and a half. And <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> And then for whatever reason, Yoda gives up and uh, concedes defeat. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> he threw chairs at me better from, uh, he had the high ground. <laughs> yeah, he had the high ground. Yeah, Yoda knew. But but anyway, yeah. No, I, I'm glad we did Yojimbo and I love Yojimbo. I was just musing about whether Seven Samurai would have been a, a easier entry point. I think just the fact that it's three hours means a lot of people wouldn't Oof. have even made it their entry point. So it would have yeah. been not an entry point at all. Yep. That's but, right. Yo, Jimbo is awesome. Okay, so let's talk through this movie, guys. We start with the awesome credits. You got that jazzy <laughs> score, which might be a stumbling block for some people. What do you guys think about the music in this movie? I liked it, ironically. I liked it f- for real, I think. I mean, it, I think 
Hmm. It's not that far off from what Morricone would do in no, those dollars. No, movies. it's very much like what felt like he was riffing on. And, you know, Ben's brought Cowboy Bebop into this, but, you know, we're going to have the hi hat playing around a lot. A lot of hi hat in this. A lot of hi hat. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. yeah. So the hi hat's the biggest ask. The hi hat's the thing that makes it feel like jazz instead of. No, no, there's some weird synth sounding things too that were just uh-huh. like a harpsichord, cool. maybe actually. Pretty, yeah. Yeah. But a lot of it's just percussion, and percussion is awesome for a samurai movie. Just like that drum kind of, not hi hat, but just like the do 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 do. Samurai's coming into town, and I, that, that stuff holds up as as well as it did. I, like, I liked it a lot. I thought it was playing pretty pretty hard sideways trying to go sideways with the movie. Yeah. Like, hey, we're winking at you. My score is winking at you. Also, we're going to experiment with something here. Hope you like it. It's yeah. That kind of feeling. Well, it was fun. I think it was completely sincere. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore silly. And I liked it ironically. <laughs> For that That's, reason. It's your prerogative. So, dude. Jake was laughing at the movie. Ben was laughing with the movie. <laughs> and... Nathan, you want to split the difference? I was laughing both with and at the yeah, movie. Yeah, there you go. And at the score. I, I think the score is hip in a 60s way. So yeah, it, right. I, yeah. Which, and that's why I think it deserves to be laughed at. Right. I, I, can, see your, <laughs> I can see both points of view. Huh. Yeah. And you're going to find, uh, guys, that it comes down to, I can't pull the Star Wars line, but they say something about point of view, and I like to associate different thoughts with other thoughts while doing <laughs> podcasts. So anyway, points of view are important. And... My point of view, wasn't this a wonderful use of your time, listeners, the, the last 30 seconds of this podcast? Uh, why don't I keep drawing attention to it? No, I'm going to stop drawing attention to it. Starting now. Three, two, one, go. My point of view is that the... I think I land more Team Ben, but I also get what Jake's saying. Like, it's hip 60s and hip 60s is kind of... Yeah, yeah. N- not so hip now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. And it's that jazzy hip 60s, like it's yeah, the no, darkest it, of it hip thought 60s. It was cool. I think it thought it was being really cool. Mm-hmm. I don't think it thought it was playing sideways to anything. I think it thought it was being really cool. And I think probably a lot of people thought it was really cool. And there's something kind of cool about it, but also kind of dorky. Mm-hmm. But it's the same as if you use like rock music in a period piece now or techno music. It can be cheesy, but it can also bring a really cool modern sensibility to things. And I think, I think this movie... I think that's what they were doing at the time, whether it shines through now. It's like, yeah, you think of samurai as this very noble, stiff kind of declamatory, these characters that are stuck in this feudal kind of reality, but we're humanizing it and making it modern. And it's in the very first shot. He comes into frame. You're looking over his shoulders. It's very heroic, iconic. And then he scratches himself. And if you read about people's reactions at the time like that was a big deal that was like i don't know what the analogous thing is but we've talked about how harrison ford is always brings a lot of humanity to indiana jones in a way that almost undercuts his iconic stature as a hero but also plays to it that's that's what this movie was kind of doing is you're used to samurai just being these shakespearean kind of figures two-dimensional but this guy has an itch so i don't know which team that makes me he has fleas yeah, he spends a lot of the movie scratching. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think he, I think he might. That that sounds like a Mufoni kind of detail. Conceit. Like, yeah, I studied lions, and I probably also studied dogs. And this guy's just like a dog, and dogs are one of the motifs of the movie. So he's just like this mangy, flea-ridden guy. But yeah, okay. So we move through the 
credits, we come to the famous iconic moment where he takes the stick and throws it up in the air and it just happens to point in this one direction and he he goes to this town and we immediately have the sort of Mad Max apocalyptic detail of the dog with the hand in its mouth, which as Jake pointed out, doesn't actually seem to really correspond to what we find out about this town because everyone's so incompetent that the idea that they've even managed to be killing each other seems a little (laughs) (laughs) ridiculous, maybe. It seems like as long as three of them can murder one of them. Right. (laughs) As long as they can just, yeah. In the the night. Yeah. While they're drunk. That's right. Then, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We meet the, I guess before that, we meet the elderly couple and we have the little setup with the son who's like, I want to go be part of the gangs because that sounds cool i don't want to be a peasant anymore i'm not gonna farm i want to wear nice clothes and have nice things and die young and die young yeah zanjiro's like hmm find it wanting (laughs) (laughs) people always say this character is so immoral amoral in the movie so amoral Obviously, like any good Clint Eastwood or Mel Gibson type thing, you're going to set it up that way, but then you're going to reveal he really has a heart, you know, just like Humphrey Bogart and Casablanca when he helps helps the couple out. Mm-hmm. I was surprised by how much this movie showed its cards early. I think it's something that the Eastwoods of the world kind of learned it was better to actually hold on to your cards for longer because Sanjuro basically says, I am actually a moral agent. I'm here to clean up this town. I have a good mission, believe mm-hmm. it or not. And these people are bad and I'm good. And I don't know how much you really question that. Certainly it feels cynical and amoral compared to the kinds <laughs> of heroes we would be getting at that time. But Sure. Well, I, I'm going to clean up this town and I'm going to have a f- good time watching. Yeah, that's the aspect <laughs> yeah, that feels cynical uh, is yeah. I'm going to enjoy. I, I would love nothing more than for these people to have a bloodbath and I'd just be smiling sitting up on the, <laughs> the, the tower, <laughs> whatever that thing is. But I was surprised by how moral the character actually seemed based on what I remembered and what I expected and what I kind of, the way I kind of think of Clint Eastwood in the Dollars movies. Like he, he was actually more of an agent of like an actual samurai as opposed to a cynical Ronin hmm. type character. But we're going to meet our other main character, Ganji, the bartender, restaurateur, whatever old he man. is, the old man. And he's a pretty awesome character. He brings a lot of heart to this movie for for lack of a better word i mean he brings whatever heart this movie you want to say this movie has the, the only real relationship we have is between sanjiro and the old man and we're gonna get our first awesome showdown he's gonna kill <laughs> those three guys it's gonna hurt <laughs> <laughs> uh you can look for uh, just I don't know. You can look all through this movie for the things we talked about in terms of the fluidity of the camera work. I mean, just think about the very first shot of the movie. We're going to follow, we're going to be over his shoulders. It's going to be this weird over the shoulder shot, but then the camera's going to suddenly stop. It's going to turn into a full frame body shot without ever cutting as he walks up and picks up the stick. And suddenly we're in this landscape and this movie's just, you watch the old couple and the way that things are framed and the way that the characters move around. There's just there's just a lot of really dynamic staging and watch that and then pull up any clip of Lord of the Rings or your favorite Marvel movie and watch the way that they stage it. And you'll see exactly what we're talking about. There's so much care given to the way that they stage it and the way that like you got to 
hit this mark so the camera can capture you here and this is all choreographed actually as naturalistic as it looks or as natural as it looks but Kurosawa also loved the elements most of his movies have an element for Seven Samurai it's rain for Throne of Blood it's fire or there's always gonna be something in this movie it's the wind blowing in to clean up the town wind is change wind is the unknown coming in upon us, which is, and so. Exactly what happens when the brother shows up with the gun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wind brings him in. Yeah, the mm-hmm. wind brings the brother in. The wind brings Sanjiro in in the first place. And then the wind accompanies every showdown. And then when Sanjiro comes back from the dead, essentially, man, the wind is blowing and all the leaves <laughs> are going. And it's, yeah. Which means they probably had giant fans running. Like, it's really hard to shoot with wind it means all the sound probably had to be redone in post and clearly was like Mm -hmm. there were some sinking issues on all those outside things it's hard to catch when you're also trying to read subtitles but it was pretty clear yeah i think hollywood has always been the most obsessed with making sure that their sound syncs up for whatever reason a lot of foreign territories just don't care about that and in in, in in italy for example if you watch the fistful of dollars movies they just didn't record sound like they had to go back and redo it all as if it was an animated movie or something like that and so there's all this lip sync stuff and you can often tell that it's just an italian actor speaking in italian and then someone put some lame but 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 you don't notice this as much because clint eastwood was obviously dubbing in his own part and knew what he was saying and could do a good job but yeah, those movies are full of that, those kinds of things. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Anything else you guys want to say about this first chunk, the introduction of Sandro and all this awesome stuff? Mifune looks fast with a sword. Yeah, he's very credible in the action. I mean, he's, he looks like he can do it. And it looks like he's outdrawing those people in a, in a real way. And he was, he trained martial arts his whole life. Like he, he did enough of these movies that it was just good for him to know how to do that kind of stuff. So mm. he's, he's known as one of the more credible guys with a samurai sword on the, on the silver screen. Then we have the part of the movie that I actually think is kind of boring, which is all the places, all the chess pieces kind of getting in place, all the double crosses. He's going to mm. go and I like everything through. I like it when he goes to the first gang, agrees to be the Yojimbo for them. And then gets the two groups, like his first plan is to just make them kill each other real simple. And he goes up on the tower and has a big grin on his face as it looks like it's going to happen. But then once that inspector shows up, the movie does slow down for a good 20 minutes as Mm -hmm. people maneuver. And maybe it would help if I was Japanese or not a racist or if my brain was less racist or something. Because if I could tell the difference between old men... With the same haircut, with the same <laughs> stupid shaved head and ponytail look or whatever that thing is called, it would be easier for me to discern these different factions. But I know there's the faction with the shrewish wife character, <laughs> but if I just see her husband without her, I'm not sure that I could distinguish him from the other guy. So I guess I kept track of it pretty well, but sometimes I got lost. Mm-hmm. I, I must confess. I don't know. You guys keep track of it perfectly because your brains aren't as no. racist. I felt like I kept track of it pretty well, but it was, it wasn't easy. Yeah. The bad guys were easy. Like the minions were easy because they were also cartoonish and yeah, had their you, own. Yeah, you've got the fat buck tooth guy. You've got the giant with the hammer and me- weird 
bone structure in his face. Right. Look like Lurch. And then you've got the grinning psychopath with the gun and a weird 1960s pompadour kind of look. <laughs> he was easy to... <laughs> yeah, so various thugs were much more discernible. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, you have this series of double crosses and Sanjuro's just... Playing them off each other. Playing them off of each other. And it's one of those movies where you kind of get it early. Like, you're not surprised by what San, you're. It's one of those movies that tells you pretty much exactly what it's... It follows the John Edwards advice for giving a sermon. It's like, here's what I'm going to do. Now I Charles did it. Charles Spurgeon, I think. Or Char- oh, Charles Spurgeon. Well, there's that, that piece of advice, I think, is attributed to all kinds of people. But, yeah, probably is Spurgeon. To, uh, here's what I'm going to do. Now I'm doing it. Here's what I did. I mean, this movie... The delight of this movie isn't really in surprise. It's more just in, hey, Sanjuro's going to do this. He's going to play all these guys off of each other until everybody's dead. And he's going to be more awesome. And they're all going to be idiots, but he's going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and then you watch that happen for two hours. And then he's like, well, I played everybody off of each other. And they were all stupid. And I was awesome. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> now this town can have a fresh start. <laughs> He says this town's going to be quieter now. <laughs> well, it will be. Everyone is dead. Yeah, for, for who? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the casket maker and the restaurateur. <laughs> yeah. Restaurant owner. Yeah, this movie, it is an interesting choice and one that Leone definitely followed that we don't get to see any of the innocent people. We don't, the, the movie actually doesn't care. Maybe that's the thing that feels cynical is it doesn't actually matter that much what's at stake. It's it's just more about can I, Sanjuro, kill and destroy these stupid, horrible people. I guess once the woman shows up in the little family mm-hmm. unit, there's something at stake. And the music definitely tells us there's something at stake because the music is suddenly like melodramatic. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's when I come back, actually. That's, that's when I stop being a little bit, not bored. I enjoyed this whole movie, but that's, that's when I really lock in and get ready for the ride. It's, that movie does a good job of giving you Sanjuro's perspective on that dude, that's for sure. Which dude? The the husband who gambled away his wife. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's like, pretty, pretty despicable. Like yeah. The- yeah, I, I half wondered, well, what, what I actually had was if, if this character and this action had happened in an American movie, then there's no way our star doesn't walk away with this woman. <laughs> yes. Right, like he either kills the husband himself because he's so disgusted, or the husband, in the course of the movie, finds a way to get himself killed. Right, by not listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very classic kind of thing that would happen in one that's of these movies. That's what would happen. In. Hmm. Or at the very least, if the movie wanted to be more cynical, the woman would end up throwing herself at the hero, and the hero would be like, "I'm disgusted by you too." Right, but he'd at least have a shot at her. Like he'd have his, yeah, just his choice. It would be his choice. Mm-hmm. Sinjiro does not seem overly concerned with uh, sexual things one way or another, nor does this movie <laughs> seem to be concerned with women or <laughs> and this is Can't not buy him off at the brothel. No, it was refreshing to see a movie that dealt so heavily with the theme of prostitution and never had any kind of flesh or anything we saw feet yeah we saw some feet that mm-hmm. was i guess that was pretty erotic that that feet uh <laughs> scene was was something but yeah the it, it's just funny like no no american director even in even in that era would ever not take the opportunity 
to be like, well, sorry. Part of the story was we had to show 61, but go back to singing in the rain. Yeah. yeah, Even John Wayne Mm -hmm. movies. Yeah. We would have show us something, some legs or something. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. It's a bordello. What did you expect? Like we had to tell that part of the story. (laughs) Did you? (laughs) (laughs) Not Sanjuro. He did not have to tell that part of the story. That was pretty clear. What'd you guys think about the bad guy, Mr. Pompadour? Uh, he was pretty fun. He was fun. Yeah. He had the gun. Yeah. He sure loved to show that off. He did. But if you had a novelty like a gun, I don't know. I can't, like, part of me kind of wants to believe that somebody would be that idiotically dorky about it. If yeah. If they came back to their village with a gun. He doesn't, so what, he doesn't know how to hold and shoot a gun properly. Who would have when it was brand new like so i don't know i just sort of like i just thought it was pretty fun top to bottom yeah i liked it yeah the smartest wolf among the wolves yeah, yeah but yeah. still someone who's gonna die right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> still still an idiot right but but, but the smartest idiot yeah. Smart, yeah i mean it felt like a bad guy in a john wayne movie there's always the guy in black who's like uh-huh. just a little bit better the sharpshooter that the the rancher brought in this guy like usually he tried to hire John Wayne, but John Wayne was too good to work for him. So then he hired this guy mm-hmm. <laughs> and this guy's heard of John Wayne and he's coming for him. John Wayne's heard of him. Yeah. John Wayne's heard of him. <laughs> yeah. They've, maybe they've got a blood feud or maybe it was just like inevitable. Right. It's, yeah. They would get to try each other out. John Wayne's usually the old guy with the history and the other guy's the younger guy. He's the, got yeah. something to prove and prove he's better than... John Wayne. I always heard you were the best. You always get those. <laughs> yeah. <guys>. yeah. <laughs> I, I love those scenes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You don't get to be my age and unless you are. Yeah. And they kill each other. Then they kill each other. <laughs> Usually John Wayne just kills him. <laughs> he only died in one movie, right? The Shootist. Or no, he died in True Grit. I know he doesn't die in True Grit. Oh, you're right. He only dies in The Shootist. That's the only one. I, I really haven't seen many John Wayne movies. No, it's just like a famous fact. The, it's just the shoot his last movie huh. he's dying of cancer huh. and it was the shootest and it was the only movie that he ever died in huh. and jimmy stewart was in it alongside him as his doctor hmm. that just feels like it can't be true but i'm thinking through them i mean there's things that end on a I'm, sad kind of like the searchers famously but oh no he dies in the cowboys does he no he definitely does they bury him and then they go get revenge well also in the man who shot liberty valance he dies but it's like we fast forwarded in the story to when he died of old age. So it's, it's not like he died in the way that you would think huh. a John Wayne would die. I just had that factoid in my head, but I've seen enough John Wayne movies. I know that he died in the Cowboys. Huh. So. How many movies did John Wayne die in? Yeah. It looks like there are a number of them. Yeah. Sands of Iwo Jima. I guess he dies in, I've never seen that one. Oh, the Alamo. He plays Davy Crockett. So he definitely dies in that one. Yeah. It's one of those facts that people like to say because it sounds cool, but... It's not true. It's not true. So where are we? Sanjuro rescues the woman. He slaughters a bunch of guys who don't really even have time to reach for their swords, but that's kind of something that you'll notice about Japanese cinema and Eastern cinema in general, if you watch it, that they're not overly concerned with making sure that the other team has a fair chance. It's just more like... If you can get the drop on them, get the drop on them. And I guess that's not that dissimilar to what like a, a Clint Eastwood would do, but they'd at least have a second to reach for the gun. 
even if he was basically walking into the room and just gunning them down at dinner, which is more than I think Mifune gave most of these guys. He's basically just running around slaughtering them. But it's awesome. <laughs> and I like that he tells the Bucktooth guy that they're dead before he's actually killed them, which is one of my favorite things for a hero type character to do. I don't know what, where I've seen it before, but <laughs> I'm sure Clint Eastwood probably has done it a few times. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Or James Bond has probably done it a few times. Like, call the guards. These guys just died. And they're like, ha, ha, ha. And then they die. <laughs> I guess Iron Man did that once or twice, maybe. In, mm -hmm. in Iron Man 3. Oh, yeah. It's like, I'm going to kill you. And they're like, ha, ha, ha. And then he kills them. It was awesome. I like guy movies. <laughs> I like imagining that I'm a person who's more powerful than other people. and Who think they have the drop on me. Who think me. they have the drop on me. <laughs> and that I have the drop on them. <laughs> it's fun. Uh, yeah, so he saves the woman. The war escalates. The wine gets spilled out. Everybody runs around and is sad. Sanjuro reaches his low point, gets the crap beat out of him. It's discovered that he helped save the woman. Yeah. That he, he that's was the why one. he gets the crap kicked out of him. Yep. Because the guy delivered a letter. He's a jerk who didn't listen. <laughs> Thanks a lot. ironically expresses gratitude. Yeah. That was irritating. He just got me killed. Thanks a lot, buddy. I'm okay. so glad I helped you. Yep. But he rehabilitates. He learns how to throw a knife or maybe he already knew he, he does some practicing with a leaf then he, then he comes back and <laughs> kills everybody oh and we, we've skipped my favorite line which is the old man says like you can't die and then what does he say like i'm not going to die i still have to kill a bunch of guys first <laughs> <laughs> you can't just give up like that <laughs> yeah it's awesome that's pretty great it's not for me is what it was it's not for me yeah, go next door and get a casket from the casket maker. <laughs> That's what it is, yeah. You can't die. It's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> He's just holding on to life for that noble cause of needing to kill a whole bunch of guys. <laughs> oh, man. Well, this is definitely a guy movie. That's for sure. I guess we talked our way through the movie. I don't know what else do you guys want to say. I mean... What what else is there to point out about this movie? I mean, I encourage people to notice the visual style, which is all through the movie. I mean, we could do a commentary and point out specific things about... But if you know what a close-up is, and you know what a wide shot is, and you know what a two-shot is, and you know... Just watch how many times the camera turn just shifts and makes goes from being one to another in a really organic way. Watch for cuts on action. Notice how fluid everything is, how composed everything is. There's a lot of really great stuff. Watch how ideas are illustrated visually instead of just with dialogue. When the old man is explaining the two factions, he's going to walk across the restaurant, open up a window on the right side to show the one faction. You're going to see some people out there doing something. And then he'll walk across, open up that little window and show the other faction. And it's like, they didn't need to do that. He could have just explained it with his words. That's what would have happened in an Avengers movie or something like that. But Oh, you would have cut outside right. and had a, had exposition over something else. The, the, yeah. But just thinking that way, like we're working with a visual medium, so we should figure out a way to visually 
illustrate things. It makes it exciting. It's all set up and payoff. Yeah. You're setting up all these characters visually. Here's their here's where they live. Here's where they do they do business. Here they are. They're doing their business. Yeah. They're evil in this way, but these people are evil in that way. Yeah. You're going to get to meet them all. Right. They're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> the only question is how. The only the question, question is, is how. how. Yep. This is <laughs> definitely more of a how movie than it is a what movie. <laughs> Notice the amount of shots of the opponents, both sides being after each other, and then Sanjuro just being in the background, looking on, amused. That's a motif that's running through the movie. The wind is a motif that's running through the movie. There's just a lot of fun stuff. Most of the characters, the camera is usually at a right angle to the characters. They are either facing it or they are parallel to it, if that's the word I want, as opposed to kind of diagonal towards it. Sanjiro is the one that most often stands askance. It's like everybody is rigid. Everybody is either against, is is operating against each other, but Sanjiro can kind of stand off to the side visually a lot of times the bad guys and the the different groups the different other people will be symmetrical he's the only thing in the frame that's not symmetrical so there's just like a lot of really fun stuff to to watch it's one of those movies that for me is almost fun to watch with the sound off or to watch with a commentary if there's one with whatever kind of way you're watching it i guess a better way to say that if you have the blu-ray or dvd or something you'd watch it with the commentary and it's just fun to to pick out those things because there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And then go watch a Spielberg movie and see how much he's doing the exact same things and borrowing these kinds of things and just being dynamic like that. And you can be excited about cinema. I was going to say, it's a pretty awesome illustration of Proverbs 1. <laughs> <laughs> these men lie in wait for their own blood. Yeah. I, I know there's a lot of movies like that, but this one feels kind of pure. <laughs> like these <laughs> are just unsympathetic fools. That's all and, it's about. And crim- that's all that it is. And criminals. It, but it also reminds me of um, the story in Judges of Gideon's sons. You get the one vicious, violent son who's trying to take over a town. And he, this other town is coming against him. And he's trying to play off that town against this town. Mm-hmm. And he gets his head crushed by a millstone. It's a very cheerful story. <laughs> it's more grim than this movie, come to think of it. <laughs> We didn't see anybody's head get crushed. No, we didn't. Well, that is something that I wish more superhero movies could do for us. Because the Western and the Samurai film are both good at reducing the situation to its bare essentials such that it it gets elevated. It's wise versus fool. It's stupid versus smart. It's experienced versus unexperienced. But it's like you're boiling it down to those essences as opposed to having a bunch of other stuff going on because the story is so simple and that's what the western form gives us that's what the samurai form gives us that's what the superhero form should give us but you have to go to Zack snyder to get it in the stupidest way possible Hmm. because the marvel movies don't want to make anything thematic out of i mean they're they're opposed to it they i know we always pick on marvel but it's just because they deserve to be picked on i mean here, here you have a form that was made for you to be able to boil complicated moral issues down to their absolute essence and just have them play out in this this biblical way like what ben's talking about not to be gospel coalition about it it's not necessarily a good or bad thing it's just something that you can do with that particular form just like you can talk about sin with a vampire novel it's a good metaphor well cowboys superheroes stuff like that it's good for boiling things down to to 
to really the essence of of what they are morally. But Marvel never does it. But even a cynical, sarcastic Ikira Kurosawa movie that's not trying to make any particular point can do it. So Marvel sucks. I think that's the theme of this podcast. I don't know. Anything else you guys want to say before we say see you later and walk into the sunset? Nope. Anything else, Ben? Nope. Is it as good as you remembered it? Yeah, I think so. It's pretty great. Yeah. Pretty great. If people haven't seen it and they're trying to think whether to see it, it's very, it is violent. I mean, it is, you're going to read some subtitles that have some PG-13 level language, I guess. Mm -hmm. But it is black and white violent and it is, I don't know, it doesn't play out in a way that feels as violent as many things. For whatever that's worth. Ben, how many grains of mulberry wheat out of (laughs) 9,000 do you give to Yojimbo? Mulberry wheat, huh? 8,500. 8,500. Sure. Jake, how many grains of mulberry wheat do you give out of 9,000? Is that what I said? 9,000? Yeah. 9,000. Yeah, well, it is kind of a perfect movie. Yeah, I'll give it 9,000. I mean, I I don't know what to tell. Like, if somebody's like, should I watch this with my teenager? Like, would they enjoy Would people enjoy this in a non academic <laughs> way? Would they derive anything from it? You're not going to derive anything from it, but some fun. But true. It could be fun to watch with your teenager. I think if you have a teenage boy in particular who, I think if you have somebody, a kid who likes movies, then it would behoove him to know something about the history of them. I think if you have a kid who likes Star Wars and Mad Max and John Wick and all the things that are derivative of this, both good and bad, then also it would behoove that kid to, to know a little something about where it comes from. So, and I think it's a pretty fun movie. Mm-hmm. So, on that level, I will give it 9,000 grains of we- grain of wheat. Also because I like the irony that the man who picked it for the staff gives it the least amount of mulberry <laughs> wheat. <laughs> I know that you do. <laughs> nah, I'll save you. I'll give it 7,000 uh, grains of wheat. Uh, just so that you'll give it more. So, Jake liked Yojimbo the best. <laughs> ben liked it okay. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's great. All right. Yo, Jimbo. Yo, Jimbo. If you've watched my neighbor Totoro with us, then <laughs> you'll know that you can make a great parody song by singing Yo, Jimbo to the Totoro <laughs> lyrics. And speaking of the Totoro lyrics, our patron choice award winner of awesomeness is almost as awesome as the Totoro lyrics. Her name is Caitlin. 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 I decided it's pronounced Caitlin. I'm adding a syllable in the middle there. Ben, why is Caitlin awesome? Caitlin would just, she'd have the uh, savvy to clean up, clean up a town, even if it was kind of a bloody business. Yeah. She'd just be able to do it. From what I know of her, she's basically a, a wife and mother type person. She's, she probably cleans up lots of things. Yeah. I yeah. think that she does. And she hates pathetic people. She has to kill them. Yeah. <laughs> she's also a murderer. I Stop. Stop crying. I hate pathetic people. It's pathetic. I hate pathetic people. I'll have to kill you. (laughs) Well, I dare say if a guy lost his wife in gambling and then was complaining about it and doing nothing about it. And built a little hut next door. Yeah. So that he could get beat up every day. I don't know that Caitlin would have a lot of patience for that. I don't think she would. I don't think she should. I don't either. And that's why she is our patron choice award winner of awesomeness. Hey guys, until next time, 
It'll hurt. 